Everyone, please find your seat because school is in session. You're listening to the New Teacher Hotline, presented by the American Board for Certification of Teacher Excellence. Hi there, and welcome to a special edition of the New Teacher Hotline. Double your pleasure. I have two other people. I have Glenn, who you've come to expect. Glenn, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. We are phoning in a third participant. This will be the first time we've ever done the show with three people. We're very excited and very nervous about how it's going to go, because my technical knowledge is very limited. This is Candy Shively. You might remember her. She's the director of K-12 initiatives for the TeachersFirst.com website. Candy, how are you? I'm fine. Ready to go. All right. So basically, I want to kind of hit some tech topics. Are you guys okay with that today? Sure. Okay. So this article is called Employees Gone Wild Special Teacher Edition. And it says it's become obvious, and this is, uh, by the way, from ArsTechnica.com, one of my favorite electronic blogging sites. It's become obvious among the tech community that people should be careful of what they post on their profiles online. Current and future employers are increasingly checking up on their employees through a quick Google, Facebook, or MySpace search to make sure everything is kosher. And as we've learned, companies are absolutely willing to make employment decisions based on what they find online. But outside of the Internet-savvy world, the concept of using discretion online can still be a challenging one, even when it puts people's jobs at risk. The Ohio Education Association, or OEA, has sent out a memo to teachers in the state discouraging them from maintaining public profiles at all. So in other words, don't put up what you're thinking about your hobbies, your thoughts, your blog, anything like that. Part of the reason teachers are encouraged to avoid posting them at all is so there's no mix-up in the case of a fake. Teachers are at risk, perhaps more than the rest of us, of having fake profiles posted online by students. High school principal Eric Trosh became the target of fake MySpace profiles in 2005, which alleged that he did drugs and was a child molester. So it goes on and on and on, and it says basically... Don't maintain an online presence, not only because you're letting personal details out, but because if you don't, then we know that any profiles that are online are fake and that anything untoward in there can't be used against you. So that seems extreme, but I guess... I don't agree with them. (laughs) You don't? Um, Okay, go ahead. I I do agree with them that um, using something like Facebook or MySpace as a personal social tool is probably not a good idea for a teacher because it just, it does open you up to an awful lot of of situations that, that might not reflect well on you professionally. But at the same time, the tools are there and can reflect really well on you professionally. If you use the ones that are intended for teachers and for education professionals, you're actually going to help your career. As a general rule, you wouldn't want to put something online that you wouldn't want your grandmother to read about you or that you wouldn't want to be on the bumper sticker on the back of your car. But I always advise teachers it's a good idea to have their own website for communication with parents and to use that site as a way to, to kind of give a little bit of information about themselves. You know, what's your educational background? What's your philosophy? What kinds of things do you expect of your students? If the school provides space for a web page, that's a great way to do it because you don't need to worry about the kids accessing that same tool. Usually they're pretty well locked down. You know, you don't just ignore the tools because there's some risks involved. Manage the risks. If you've got a secure site, if there is such a thing as a secure site, that's a good place to uh, put out some professional information about yourself as a teacher. I also agree with her that I probably would not use MySpace or any of the other social places because I, I just think that sends the wrong message. It's difficult to distinguish their online profile from a student's online profile. 
And then you even see, here are my friends, and here's a list of all their students, and you see that the, the talk is not always professional. It's definitely not something you would see in the classroom. So I would really encourage people to remember that even though it's online, you know, you have to act as though you're still sitting right in the middle of the classroom, even during an observation. The analogy that I use for a lot of the social networking tools is it's kind of like the high school cafeteria, that people do tend to sit at the same table with the people that are like them. Mm -hmm. And if you go onto Facebook or MySpace as a teacher, it's like sitting down with the kids at their table. And you're you're opening yourself up to being treated like another kid. That's not really where you belong. You're supposed to be on lunch duty instead, and and you have your own table in the faculty room where you can talk and where that's the appropriate social networking that you might do. So I'm guessing the bottom line we're saying is that it's a good idea to just take your profiles down from these websites. Oh, yeah. I would abs- absolutely. Well, in advance of being a teacher too, because this is all cached. In other words, I mean, copies of of previously posted web pages are stored all over the internet. And I think you want to let that cash have time to expire. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, that I thought of in light of this issue is there are all these photo storage websites where you can go on and you can put the pictures you took of your kids or the pictures you took of your vacation. Mm-hmm. And depending upon what you use as a username on there, people might be able to find photographs of you know all sorts of things that you might not want your students to see or the parents to see, or your potential employers to see, even if you think they're only finding the ones that are of your, you know, vacation in Maine, they may also, you know, poke around, and especially the kids will poke around and find things. I think the other thing that uh, new teachers should be aware of is that most students have plenty of time to search the web. Right. So mm-hmm. Even though it, it looks like it's disguised or hidden, you know, they've got time, and they'll find mm-hmm. it sooner or later. And as clever as you think you've been hiding something, just remember kids are in the habit of hiding things from people too. Right. So they probably know all the tricks. They know where it is. They know a lot more than we do. (laughs) You know, maybe it doesn't hurt every once in a while to Google your own name and uh, see what comes up (laughs) and make sure that it's what you expect and it's not something that would embarrass you. You've got mail. This week's email is from Francine Ware. Apologize if I have mispronounced your name. But Francine asks, what is meant by the term digital divide? Ah. Well, I wish I could say there was one definition for it. All right. Well, let me ask um, Glenn. As a person that doesn't have themselves immersed in technology all the time, digital divide, what does that mean to you? Nothing. Nothing at all? One, one more of those math terms that used to upset me. Is it like the slash? Oh, divide. It's the slash symbol because <laughs> that's what you show divide digitally with the keyboard. And you're the expert, so let me take a shot and you tell me how close I am. Okay. It's the division between groups of people based on their access or understanding of technology. There's a group of people who aren't as financially well off as another, so they can't afford computers. Then you don't gain that literacy that then makes you ineligible for technology jobs and opportunities later. That's, is that close? You're, you're very, you're, you're pretty much right on what I would have said, except that I would have just said, people who don't have ready access to computers and the Internet. And and at this point, if you don't have the Internet, you fall into that have-not kind of group just because so much of what we do now with computers is online, whereas when they first were invented, it was all you know using software on your local computer. The interesting thing that happens, though, is that that ready access in some situations isn't dependent on financial status as much as it can also be because of where you live. Right. If you live somewhere where, for example, uh-huh. where there is no high-speed Internet available. So we have people who live in rural areas who are falling on the have-not side of that digital divide because you can't get high-speed. And at this point, most of the websites are designed to operate on a cable modem or on a DSL connection or to use the kind of connections you have in a school. So there is a kind of a divide between dial-up and not dial-up at this point. 
it's a very tough issue in the classroom because you want to be able to to do things with the internet as a teacher, but then if you if your students don't all have access outside of school, you have to make sure they have access somehow. That can be frustrating because trying to figure out how to balance that is is really really tricky. I think it impacts classroom teachers considerably when you assume that they have, and I'm I'm just throwing this out, roughly a 45 minute class period, and they're trying to uh, do a web search or web quest or some other type of internet lesson, and it takes forever to download something off the internet. It kind of ruins the spontaneity of the class. Uh, the students become disinterested, and sometimes by the time it downloads, they don't have time to do any. With it. And it does seem like this is self-propagating, that the longer that division exists, that the greater it will become. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to use a mathematical term, it's an exponential function. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, throw that in there. <laughs> and now, the Tech Toolbox, presented by TeachersFirst.com. Everybody talks about integrating technology into your classroom, but how do you actually do it? So we've got Candy with some easy ways to integrate technology, some intermediate ways, and some advanced ways. Okay, so, sounds good. Uh, I'm going to start with some easy ones, okay. and I have I have two because I figure at that level we get more people involved. This first one has all the letters of the alphabet, and when you click on them, it brings up um, a graphic of something that starts with that letter, which is you know pretty basic, but if you click on it again, you actually get a page that does something. So the kids, if they click on the H for house, they see a house. It talks to you. So if they can't read the words, it still reads them out loud to them. There's a picture that goes with it. And the kids can then see other words that rhyme with it as well. When you click on cake, it shows you the ingredients that go in the cake. And you have to drag them in to mix the cake up. So the kids get involved with the letter. And they won't forget that letter because they really had something engaging that they did just by clicking on the letter. So that's my alphabet interactive. That that sounds great. You know, that would be so helpful to a beginning reader or Mm -hmm. a child who's uh, just starting out. I think that's just wonderful. By the way, you'll be able to access these links from the new teacher hotline site or by going to teachersfirst.com. So don't waste your time writing down all the long web addresses. Right. The next one I have is a pair of carbon footprint calculators. Hmm. So you can click and go in and enter information about you. It's anonymous. You don't have to tell them who you are or anything. And it'll tell you what your carbon footprint is. And the carbon footprint is basically how many resources you personally use. Yeah, how much are you, how much impact are you having on the environment? Okay. And um, how much are you using up our natural resources? You might want to assign it as a homework assignment Mm -hmm. if if your students do have access and they, they can then discuss the issues at home with their parents. There's so much in the news right now that this would fit right in with. The kids really like to know, well, how do I fit in? And this involves them. I like that one too. That's, that yeah. wouldn't be one that uh, kids in biology or environmental science, uh, I think they could use that today. Okay, so let's move up to our intermediate level. Okay, I have two of these. One is for secondary level. If you have kids who are not doing well in their classes because they're not taking good notes, this is a tool called the Cornell Notes Generator, and it actually creates the handouts that you can give to the kids that are customized to your classroom using the Cornell note-taking method, which is a special kind of layout on the page, and it explains it to them. And I think you could probably start using that with sixth graders on up if you taught them the note-taking method. Right, okay. The other one I have is actually a brand-new project that teachers first launched this fall called Globe Tracker's Mission. And this is a great way to teach map skills, geography, 
landforms, the continents and oceans, the countries of the world, not every country, but the, the beginnings of this, to grades three through six. This is actually, it looks like a blog, and it's two teenagers who are writing about their travels on a secret mission, traveling around the world and, and posting messages to their blog and talking about the things they see and the things they learn. And in the process, they're also explaining a lot of geography terms like the cardinal directions and latitude and longitude. And So let me ask you this, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? <laughs> Do you have the answer well, to that is, question? No, I wish I did. But I'll settle for Matt Lauer. Where's Matt Lauer? And it has the tools that kids are used to today. It even has text messaging in it. So the kids will be engaged and they will learn geography in a, a real world kind of way. And that's my that's my second intermediate one. Okay, so we're moving on to the advanced for those of you who are not afraid of technology. And this one's called Our Story. We actually wrote it up as part of the Teacher's First Edge, which is where we write up tools that are kind of on the edge of the newer technologies. Um, this one allows you to put pictures and text up on a site to create a story. It doesn't have to be real stuff. It could be real. You could have, let's say, in an elementary classroom, and they have a timeline of all the major things they've done during the year, their field trip to the apple orchard, and the day that they decorated the classroom for the holidays, and the day that they learned about Martin Luther King Jr., and the day they had a, a guest speaker, and they you take digital pictures and, and upload them and so on. But you could also use it for fictional things. So there's a place for pictures and a place for text. And you're creating a digital story. All right. Well, that was very helpful. Glenn, thoughts? I know you were taking copious notes. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I was. I, I'm somewhat amazed by what Candy has given us today. That's such a wealth of information. And as she was talking, I was thinking, you know, let's face it. That is what instruction is going to look like in the very near future. Yeah, and the thing I really like about it is that a lot of times teachers will say they incorporate technology, but it's very artificial and it's very forced. Or we're just going to look at this one web page while I'm talking and giving my lecture. These are really interactive ways that are genuine. Mm -hmm. And this may be the only chance that some of these kids get to work with technology. So this is an instructor's chance, a teacher's chance to actually help bridge that digital divide. Well, and it's also an opportunity for them to be places and see things they would never, ever see. I mean, you know, things as simple as, as Google image searches, if you want to show them, instead of talking about what a Zulu hut looks like, do an image search and show them what a Zulu hut looks like. And all of a sudden, you know, that whole picture is worth a thousand words thing is really true. And, and the textbooks can't possibly have the number of images that we can get in just a split second online. Very true. All right, well, Candy, thanks for joining us this week. Oh, yeah, this has been great. I am, I am real happy that Candy took the time to... Join us today and bring all this wonderful information. Talking to Candy that makes me realize just how little I really do understand about what's going on in instructional technology. So I appreciate <laughs> that you're here. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, anytime. Can you tell I enjoy this? I can tell. <laughs> all righty. Well, I will let you guys go. Thanks for joining us this week in the New Teacher Hotline. And in the meantime, you know where we'll be in the faculty lounge. See you in two weeks. Missed an episode or two? www.newteacherhotline.com Past episodes, message boards, and uh, uh, other stuff. Go there now. You know you want to. All the cool kids are doing it. The New Teacher Hotline is presented every two weeks by the American Board for Certification of Teacher Excellence. Look us up online at www.abcte.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the American Board for Certification of Teacher Excellence. In fact, ABCTE makes no claim that downloading this podcast will even be worth your time. But, you know, we, we hope it is. Our theme song is courtesy of Van Davis at www.vandavis.com. 
Thanks for listening. Thank you.